This is Doug Hastings, Vice President of Moody Radio, and we're thankful for support from our listeners and businesses like United Faith Mortgage. Mortgage commercials are rarely exciting. So to make it slightly more interesting, here are my nieces to do it for me. So interest rates continue to drop like my sister's baby teeth. Come on, Uncle Ryan had to say the same thing last year. That's true. Last year, it was rates are boring talk historically low. And now this year, there's somehow even more boring talk historically lower than the previous boring talk historically low. Sounds boring. But for so many listeners who just haven't wanted to deal with it, refinancing right now could save you massive amounts of Lego sets. Rates have gotten that low. Some borrowers could potentially save hundreds monthly and tens and tens of thousands over the life of a loan. And if you didn't put 20% down before, some could even stop having to pay PMI. Give Uncle Ryan a shot. We are United Faith Mortgage. United Faith Mortgage is a DBA of United Mortgage Corp. 25 Melville Park Road, Melville, New York. Licensed Mortgage Banker. For all licensing information, go to nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Corporate NMLS number 1330. Equal housing lender. Not licensed in Alaska, Hawaii, Georgia, Massachusetts, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Utah. You're listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast. This week, we bring you five messages Alan Redpath presented on the Christian life at MBI Founders Week Bible Conference 1969 and 1982. Alan Redpath was a British evangelist, author, and former pastor of Moody Memorial Church in Chicago during the 1950s. Now, here is Alan Redpath on Today in the Word radio. Every truth has two sides just like a coin. And uh, the infallibility of the Word of God in its authority is one side. The other side of that coin is the infallibility and inevitability of the authority of the Word of God in the life of every believer. I want to deal with this side of the truth this evening and to take for my text James chapter 1 and verse 22. But be ye doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving your own selves no less an authority than Martin Luther called the epistle of James an epistle of straw because he could only see in it a great contradiction between James and Paul. Paul, who was teaching justification by faith alone. James, who taught not by faith alone. But here again is an example of the very thing which I have said, 
that every truth has two sides. In fact, Paul and James were both saying the same thing from a different viewpoint. James was saying, not by faith alone, not by mental assent to doctrine, not by a statement of doctrinal creed in which you believe alone, but by works. And nobody would be more happy to agree with that than the Apostle Paul. You will remember that in Acts chapter 15, he was brought before the council of the church in Jerusalem to account for his conduct and for his ministry among Gentile people. And he argued for justification by faith alone. The council passed a unanimous resolution recommending the acceptance of what Paul taught. And the chairman of the council was James. So they both agreed. And as we read in those familiar verses in Ephesians chapter 2, by grace are ye saved, through faith. And that not of yourselves, but is of the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works which he hath ordained that we should walk in them. My dear friends, we're in grave danger of confusion in our thinking between good works which cannot avail anything for our salvation and the good works which are the fruit of the indwelling Son of God in a born-again life and which are the only evidence of conversion. Charles Finney, in his great books on revival, says, when revival comes, Truths to which our hearts are unresponsive suddenly become alive 
And whereas mind and conscience may have assented to the truth, when revival comes, obedience to the truth is the one thing that matters. In his matchless books, Know Your Bible, which should be in every preacher's library, written by Dr. Graham Scroggie, he says that James, in these five chapters of 108 verses, refers to 21 Old Testament books, including seven out of 12 minor prophets. He also makes constant application to our Lord's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And one such application is here. For if we compare my text with Matthew 7, 21, we are reminded that our Lord Jesus said, Not everyone that saith to me, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. And in verse 24, he that heareth my word and doeth them, I will liken him to a man who buildeth his house upon a rock. In the earlier part of this chapter, James has been speaking about how we should hear. Verse 19, be swift to hear. Verse 21, receive with meekness the engrafted word. But now, the all-important thing. Having heard, what then? Having listened, Having been in church, having been at Founders Week, having heard, having sat under a whole avalanche of sound doctrine, what then? And our text reminds us very forcibly that hearing is in order to doing. Faith and obedience go hand in hand. It is impossible for us truly to believe the principles that are laid down in the New Testament without their laying a powerful grip upon our lives and influencing all that we are.
we were reminded of John the Baptist. And we read of him that the word of God came to him. And the meaning of that word is that it gripped him. It came upon him with force. It's the same thought when God spoke to Jeremiah. The word of God came to him. And the only hope for the Christian church today, for young and old, is for the word of God with, with all its authority to come upon us and grip us till the only thing that matters is that we work it out in obedience. The only safe standard in a 20th century which has gone crazy about morals and which talks about the new morality, which incidentally is as old as the first chapter of Romans. In a century like this, the only hope is when all of us here are gripped by the authority of God's word. To the believer, the word of God, James says, is the perfect law of liberty. It is not a code of do's and don'ts, but it is the law of liberty written by the Holy Spirit upon our hearts so that the Christian obeys not in order that he might be saved but because he is not because he has been delivered from authority but because he is under authority and he obeys the Lord Jesus not because he is outwardly compelled to do so, but because there is a strange inner compulsion which always says to him, I must obey God. We believe that the whole Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, is inspired that it does not contain the word of God but it is the word of God and uh, we have been clearly powerfully reminded of that fact but my dear friends may I say this to you the Bible from Genesis to Revelation 
has to be obeyed. You cannot carve out from this book passages and say that is not for this dispensation. Of course, we believe in dispensation. Of course, we believe in a dispensation of law, a dispensation of grace. We believe in all that. But if you have a whole cake and you cut a slice out of it, it is part of the whole. And we cannot throw aboard whole sections of the Word of God and say they only apply to the Millennial Kingdom. A whole Bible is inspired. A whole Bible is to be obeyed. I am saved from all the condemnation of God's holy law because Jesus Christ fulfilled it and he's the end of it unto righteousness because I trust it and love it. I am saved from the condemnation of the law. But I am not saved from obligation to the law. For the Lord Jesus condemned sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the law but after the Spirit. There are many people in our churches who read the Bible, who respect the Bible, and who reverence the Bible, but who do not obey the Bible. They are merely hearers of the Word. I could hear a sermon every day, maybe, preached by Gabriel itself from heaven, but that wouldn't get me there. Hearing must be followed by the silence of my heart in meditation. And that in turn must be followed by the activity of my life in obedience. It isn't enough to remember what I hear, to take notes about it, to write it out, to have my Bible memory kit in my pocket and learn a verse of Scripture every day, that's a good thing to do. But that which must crown every act of faith is obedience. And apart from that, our text says, 
We deceive ourselves, but nobody else. The worst form of deceit, the most awful error imaginable, the most terrifying road to a Christless eternity that leads a man down to hell is to fill his head with truth, but his heart is empty of love and his life is bereft of obedience. The Bible is a directory of disciplined Christian living. Therefore, the main business of our lives is to obey its authority. Some people, and they may be here, say that when a preacher speaks like this and talks about practical righteousness, he isn't preaching the gospel. Neither he is, if he does not present obedience as the fruit of faith. Or, alternatively, if he presents obedience as the means of winning salvation. But if our conception of Christianity has not grasped it as a rule of life, we had better go to school with James. Praise God, the gospel is redemption. But praise God, the gospel is also law. It puts me under an authority in which my heart delights and from which I am glad never to be able to escape. It is not what we believe, but what we do is the essence of our Christian living. But our doing must be deeply rooted in our conviction. You notice here the contrast that James draws in verse 23. The man who merely hears the word and fails to do it, to obey it, is like a man who beholds his natural face, that is, uh, the face he was born with. He looks at it in a mirror. Now, my friends, there are two ways of finding out what you like. One, a photograph, the other, a mirror. Before coming over to the States in uh, a few weeks ago, of course, I had to have a photograph taken. And I went to the cheapest place I could find. Uh, it cost half, uh, I mean, um, 
uh, about, uh, excuse me, working this out. I think, yes, about 50 cents. And uh, it was all over in a minute. And I had three of these photographs. <laughs> and I said to myself, is that really true? <laughs> I went back home where I um, have a photograph of uh, my wife and Carolyn and myself that was taken just before we left Chicago. It was presented to us by the photographer with his compliments. A beautiful, touched-up photograph. <laughs> a master of the art. And I compared these two together. And having looked at them for a few moments, I said to myself, one of those is not telling the truth. <laughs> so I took the one I just uh, had taken up to my bedroom, and I looked in the mirror. And I looked at that photograph, and I had to acknowledge it was pretty near the truth. And the one on, uh, on the piano, which is a work of art, is sheer flattery. <laughs> you can find out what you look like either by the photograph or the mirror. But if you really want to know, choose the mirror. The photograph is what other people say. The mirror is what God says. And uh, there's no use arguing with it. It is a perfect reflector. But there's a type of man who looks at his natural face casually. That's what the word behold in the text implies. A casual glance. And immediately he goes away and forgets it. He doesn't bother about it. But there's another man, you notice, from this passage, who looks carefully into the perfect law of liberty. And that word means he stoops down. He bends down. He gazes. He looks with a penetrating gaze. It's the same word that is used of the Apostle Peter when on the first Easter morning he went to the empty tomb and he stooped down and gazed. These are two types of people. The one who casually looks at his Bible, shuts it and goes away and forgets it. The other, he bends his heart, his head, his face over the word of God. And 2 Corinthians 3.18, as with open face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, 
we are changed into the same image from glory to glory as by the Spirit of the Lord. One man had his quiet time. One man read his scripture union portion, put his book down, shut it, went away to business, forgot all about it. The other man comes each day under the authority of the word and on his knees he bows his head and bows his heart and he catches something of the glory and something of the glow and his life is changed from glory to glory by the Holy Spirit. And you know how you can tell the difference between the two? The outcome is inevitably and without exception the difference between mellowness and hardness. As I grow older now, there's only one thing I want to be that's more like Jesus. I want to be more mellow, more gentle, more loving, more tender, more kind, more merciful, more like him. You watch some Christians grow old and they're fighting with controversy. They're battling for doctrine. They're standing for the truth. And they're fighting tooth and nail with everybody who doesn't agree with them 100%. Sheer evangelical popery. But they're there in Britain and here. And they're as hard and unchristlike as you can imagine. But does the other man who has bowed before the word of God and his spirit has become gentle. Ah, he's not weak. He's strong. He's firm. He's true to truth. But there's something about him that radiates the glow of Jesus. And everyone who meets him feels somehow he's being brought a stage nearer Christ. This man, says verse 25, is blessed in his deed, in his obeying the authority. Obedience. Whoever finds obedience to the authority of God's word a delight, he's a free man. And we are set at liberty when we walk within the framework of the gospel. And they who delight to do the law in the power of the Holy Ghost are free. The founder of this church knew that truth. For he chose is his life text. He that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Not he who knoweth it. Not he who admires it, but he who does it. 
Now, my friends, I want to be finished in 10 minutes, so don't worry. But all that was really only the introduction. <laughs> the question I want to ask every one of you here tonight in the name of the Lord Jesus is, how do you read your Bible? Which category do you come into? Are you a hearer only? Perhaps convicted? And you attend regularly every conference you, conference you can lay your hand on. And you hear the finest messages proclaimed to you, but you fail in carrying it through into obedience. If ye know these things, happy are ye if you do them. Now, the remainder of this passage gives us three simple, brief tests which will help us to decide which category we come into. Now, I want to ask you, please, in these ten minutes, every one of you, if you were thinking of having a nap, wake up. It's very hot in here. If you were thinking of uh, dozing, well, come on now, be with me. I once heard a preacher say in, uh, in Boston that the average listening capacity of a congregation was 20 minutes. But he himself then went on to preach for an hour and ten minutes. <laughs> so um, I should be all right for a few minutes longer. Three simple tests. Because if you submit to the authority of the Word of God, this will inevitably reveal itself in these ways. One, the test of a spirit-controlled tongue. Verse 26, if any man among you seem to be religious and bridleth not his tongue but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. I may conform to the Word of God. I may conform to outward forms of service. But Satan has a remarkable habit of sowing tares among wheat. And uh, as Dr. Lehman Strauss says in his excellent commentary on this epistle, which I commend to you, I quote, These tares sit with the brethren, sing with the brethren, give with the brethren, listen to God's word, but they have never submitted to its authority. You may shelter under the umbrella of the most evangelical church in the country, 
and believe every word of its doctrine, but go to hell if you don't obey. If any man seem to be religious and bridleth not his tongue. It's very interesting that when you're ill, a doctor often says to you, show me your tongue. Listen, listen. The true test of a man's Christian experience is not his ability to speak his mind, but his ability to control his tongue. We judge a man by his walk. James says, judge him also by his talk. Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. Young people, has grace cleaned up your tongue? Ephesians 4.25, wherefore put away lying. Speak every man truth with his neighbor. I'm talking to you personally, just as if you were the only one, I hope, that the Holy Spirit is doing this, the only one who matters. Listen, have you got a tongue that tells the truth? There's no such thing as a saved liar. We are saved from lying. Have you a gossiping tongue? Do you spread rumors that are only half true? Do you put them in writing? Do you publish them in magazines, in periodicals? Take them out of context? Omit certain parts which alter their meaning? Twist the truth? Don't disclose all the facts? Do you do that sort of thing? Your religion is vain. You are heading for a Christless grave. Second test. A sympathetic heart. Verse 27. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction. And that word visit doesn't mean a casual call. It's the same word as is used in Luke chapter 1, verse 68 and verse 78. When the day spring on high hath visited us. Oh, my friend, if you would place that visitation from heaven, that lowliness of the Son of God in the manger, that love that he came to bestow, if you would compare that with the context of our verse, then I think you really begin to understand what religion means. I believe the world, your neighbor, my neighbor, is dying because there's nobody to love them. 
teenagers today about whom I'm so desperately concerned in Edinburgh. They have no father to pray for them, no mother to pray for them, no home to care for them. They're just brought up any old how. Do you get under that load? Do you share that care? Do you express that love to them? You give a tract to a stranger in a street. Well, that's a good thing to do. But do you ever take flowers to a home where there's a sad, broken heart? That's even better. Just before Christmas, in a town in Scotland, I read in a Scottish paper that there had been a very serious fire. And a house had gone up rapidly in flames. And uh, it was about nine o'clock in the morning. And there were three children in that house, two little boys sleeping upstairs and one baby girl downstairs. Before there was any time to call a fire brigade, the place was in flames and smoke. And a passing tradesman managed to get up with a ladder to the top window and pull out the two boys. But the front door and the gateway and everything, the ground floor was full of smoke. And so those two men put bandages upon, the, upon their faces and round their eyes. And they got down on their knees and they began to go. Slowly, slowly, through all the smoke, through all the flame. It never seemed that they could make it. When suddenly the mother, who had been out shopping, came back saw what had happened. She dashed over them, raced into the room, pulled out the little girl alive and got her into the street. Love will always find a way. A loving heart. A sympathetic heart. And lastly, a sanctified life. Verse 27, pure religion and undefiled before God means to keep himself unspotted from the world. God will always keep that which I commit to him against that day, but I am responsible for keeping myself unspotted from the world. My dear friend, God won't keep you from temptation if you deliberately expose yourself to it. In every street, there's a pa pavement. Um, uh, I've gone back to the King James Version. Um, let me get the American Revised a minute. In every street, I know, there's a sidewalk. That's it. A footpath. And if you want to keep yourself clean, you don't walk on the edge of the curb, you keep right off. And in the spiritual sense of the word, that means keeping close to Jesus. My friend, did you know this? Holiness is not it not a blessing, it's a person. And holiness is Jesus. 
I want to bear testimony as I close to something that has happened to me recently, which I mentioned to some missionaries on Saturday morning. Several months ago, when I lay very ill on a sickbed, I was attacked by every form of evil imagination. Foul thoughts, evil temptations, which I thought long since had left me, evil words, bad language, all these things flooded into my mind. And I was absolutely in despair, and I'd lost faith, and I couldn't pray, and I couldn't talk to God, and it all seemed a hopeless battle. And I said, out of weakness, Lord, this is surely the devil. I can't stand him anymore. And it seemed he drew very near to me that morning. For the first time, I was conscious of his, of his presence, for I hadn't been for a long, long period. And he said to me, my child, it isn't the devil. It's me. It's Jesus, your Savior. And I've had to let you go through all this that you might understand that that is all that you are but for grace. The only good thing about a Christian is Jesus. And holiness in the New Testament sense of the word, the sanctified life, is a life where sinful corruption has been met by all the fullness of the blessing of the power of God flowing in, flowing through, and flowing out. And the tests, therefore, of how I read my Bible, whether or not I submit to its authority. Listen, is my tongue controlled? Is my heart bleeding with love? Is my life pure? like Jesus. For by their fruits ye shall know them. And the Lord deliver me, and the Lord deliver you from being thoroughly sound in doctrine and thoroughly unpleasant in life. Not an easy message to preach, but such obedience to the word has its own reward, an increasing communion with God, a closer conformity to his will, and a glimpse 
of the reflection of the smile of Jesus. I close with this illustration. I reach over the pond for it. And I go back into history, which you may read for yourself in Winston Churchill's war memoir. The date, sometime in May 1940. The threat, invasion of Britain. The experience, hundreds and thousands of Nazi bombers dropping everything they had upon London and upon the southeast coast. The scene, a little air base in the southeast part of our island. Sitting round a table, a dozen airmen, dead tired, some of them scarred and bleeding, worn out. Between them, sharing three planes, all that was left of that Bomber Command, uh, Fighter Command. Hadn't slept for days or nights. Absolutely weary, drinking a cup of coffee. Suddenly, a notice from Air Force Headquarters. Enemy approaching in force over the English Channel. 500 planes estimated. Take immediate action. And all they did was to put down the coffee, run for the planes, and send a message to headquarters, which read, message received and understood. I have unburdened my heart to you concerning what I believe to be the greatest need of the hour. Message received and understood. You've been listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast and a message Alan Redpath presented on The Christian Life at MBI Founders Week Bible Conference 1969 and 1982. Alan Redpath was a British evangelist, author, and former pastor of Moody Memorial Church in Chicago during the 1950s. Audio copies of this and many other messages from the podcast are available at moodyaudio.com. Today in the Word Radio is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of the Moody Bible Institute.